The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the ninth chapter. When the, day drew, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and from his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. God's face. You may have heard me remark before about God's face. In the Old Testament, emotions would be expressed usually by God in terms of his face. If he was angry, his face would burn red with fire. Sometimes if he was angry, fire or heat would come out of his nose. Strange stuff like that, right? So, you know, when it says in the Old Testament, in the presence of God, it's this Hebrew word called lifne, which simply means to be before the face of God. In the same way that if someone's in your presence, they're looking at you, they're in face-to-face conversation, and, you know, they're in your presence, which is a big reason why Pastor Rogers, when he was interim, thought it very important that when it was the time of the government saying, don't worship, don't do communion, instead, Pastor Rogers said, if God would like for us to be in his presence before his face, then let's provide that opportunity. And so we see God and his face being important in our human history. Sometimes he'd turn his face against a city. Sodom and Gomorrah, 
blown up, right? People that looked back turned into salt, pillars of salt. But also, God can set his face to somewhere to bless it. Think of those strange words at the end of the service. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. So God's face can bless. But here we have Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, not in judgment, maybe not even in blessing, but to do an important appointed task in perfect obedience to his father who sent him to become a person, to go and suffer, to take on the sin of the world and offer it up, his life as a perfect sacrifice for those sins. You heard it. This is the halfway point of Luke's gospel. Everything before this has been preparatory for this main mission, the final pilgrimage to Jerusalem where he'll be arrested, where he'll be lied about for your sake, where he'll be tortured for your sake, suffer for your sake, and die on a cross for your sake. Jesus' goal is to go to Jerusalem, but not just to make sacrifices, not just to make a sacrifice for himself or to, you know, put in his time to punch his card but to go to Jerusalem in perfect obedience to his father under his law to offer up himself for the sins of all people on a cross. His hope, his prayer, his actual prayer, check out John 15 through 17, is that all might follow him, all might hear his word and be saved, believe on him and follow him in his same process from baptism to new life, to eternal life by faith in his death and his resurrection. And to do it, his face, his forehead, it had to be turned to Jerusalem. It had to be hardened against those who oppose him, like happened to the prophet Ezekiel when his forehead was hardened against those who were stubborn and disobedient. Ezekiel just went on through with a hard forehead against those stubborn people that didn't want to do what God wanted to do. And so we see Jesus, a train with a cow catcher that many of us were obsessed with as little boys and girls playing with our trains, plowing in a slow way through a field of cows, sheep, and goats, that are too stubborn to move off the rails as he goes even through Samaria to Jerusalem. Now, usually when I read this part, you skip right by. This weird part where he sends people ahead of him, because imagine the size of his group. And usually when someone's going on a religious pilgrimage to Jerusalem from Galilee the hinterlands, they'd actually, to avoid going through Samaria, they would cross the Jordan River and go around 
adding, you know, days and days to their journey just so they wouldn't have to see those disgusting Samaritan people. And let me tell you, Jesus shows that those Samaritan people weren't happy to see Jews. You see, there is a big disagreement. Not in opinion, but in doctrine. Moses had come down this mountain with ten commandments or words from God. God cleverly doesn't give us numbering. We'd have to figure that out for ourselves. But you see, the Samaritans, they interpret the tenth command to be worship on Mount Gerizim. Offer up sacrifices on Mount Gerizim. But where do Jews offer up sacrifices in worship? Zion, the holy habitation of the Most High, as Psalm 46 puts it. And so, when Jesus, his, his disciples that he sent before him, went before him into Samaria, how were they received other than get these filthy, uh, you know, um, heretics out of here? And so, James and John, recognizing Jesus to maybe be Elijah or Elisha, one of these great prophets who asked for fire to come down on the enemies of the Lord, and God did it. God burned up his enemies with fire from heaven. They asked the same thing of their teacher, who definitely is a prophet, definitely is the son of man. Soon they'll recognize he's the son of God. But they say, please, Jesus, would you make it so that fire would come down on these Samaritans who have rejected you? It's what we want from God to our enemies, never for ourselves, right? Even though we are sinful, even though we make mistakes, even though we knowingly choose to do the wrong thing. We want Jesus to be patient with us. But we want fire to come down from heaven and consume our enemies before they have time to repent. And so luckily, Jesus, who is long-suffering like his father, is patient. And he rebukes them, James and John, two brothers, by the way, cousins of our Lord, Because he wants to teach them what God is like. God is patient. God is loving. God is forgiving. And these Samaritans will later have a chance to repent and believe in Christ. And by the way, many will. In the book of Acts, apostles will be sent to Samaria. And they will preach the gospel. And you know what? Instead of fire coming down to destroy them, the fire of the Holy Spirit in tongues of flames come down from heaven and convert their hearts to saving faith in Christ. And that same James, that same John, they will preach and they'll start to write books and letters about this kind of forgiveness and conversion to faith in Christ. And you know what's crazy? James, he's going to be killed by King Herod. He's going to be beheaded. Uh, The Acts 
book of Acts says um, uh, to please the religious leaders at the time. And there's even a note in there that everyone watching just, it was just another occurrence in the streets. It was as if nothing had happened. Dear brother James, the apostle, is beheaded in the streets. Does John begin a lifetime of resentment and holding a grudge and armed resistance against this government? No. Through this terrible suffering of seeing his dear brother die, be killed for the gospel, John takes it as a chance to learn what forgiveness looks like. For John will later write in 1 John, if anyone is to say that he is a follower of him, meaning Jesus Christ, he ought to walk as he walked. And so John will forgive even those that killed his brother. And, of course, he'll go on to write the best gospel. All right. And he'll preach. He'll reveal his divine revelation from God of the end times that we are living in now. And he'll have a pretty awesome career as Bishop of Asia Minor. But that's besides the point. After this little portion of scripture, three different people will come to Rabbi Jesus and they'll present three situations. It's like um, if you can remember from like the book of Judges, um, like Deborah would sit under the in the shade of a tree and she would decide accounts for people. People would bring up a, a unsolvable uh, situation in their, their tribe and Jesus would, or sorry, whoops, Freudian slip, Deborah would decide between the two. Moses would do the same thing. All judges, prophets, priests would help with this role. And I want you to think about how you would respond to Jesus's advice. Ask yourself, would you be discouraged? Would you at this point depart from Jesus? Or would you act in faith on what he has to say? The first says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Freaky. You'd almost be standing there like, okay, why did he say that? It's Jesus saying, leave behind your pacifier. Leave the pacifier behind of your pleasures in life, your habits that keep you from developing your faith, keep you from sharing God's word, even with your kids, your spouse. You're on a journey now. You're on what Jesus calls his exodus to glory. You have your face set on Jerusalem now. Your eyes aren't set on goals and desires of this world, but goals and desires of the kingdom of heaven promised you in Jesus Christ. 
It means you're probably going to suffer. You're going to die, but you're going to rise again. And Jesus is going to redeem your suffering. Jesus is going to redeem your death. And that redemption will be made full in your resurrection. To the second, he said, follow me. But Jesus said, or the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. This is the one that really troubles people. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Or you might hear it said, let the dead bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This, I believe, is the hardest saying. It's really strange how it's number two of the three. Because usually in Greek literature, right, it gets progressively harder. But here Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. What in the world could he be saying? Obviously, if this person's father had died, he would have buried him already. For everyone knows that Jews must bury a loved one within eight days of their death. And so it sounds like this guy is kind of hemming and hawing, twiddling his thumbs, putting off, putting off, putting off what's demanded of him now. But what it also calls attention to is a perennial problem that often even and maybe even specifically affects us living in the suburbs, the decadence of the suburbs. If your family, if your relationships are keeping you from true faith and following Christ to glory, Jesus is telling you here that those relationships can keep you from the glory and faith that Jesus is calling you to. And this final one says, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll even call you Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. I mean, this is what Elisha did. So we heard in our Old Testament reading. But Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. A proverb. A proverb that somehow entered eternity when Elisha was plowing that field that day and was called by Elijah for the Lord's service. It seems that Jesus here is speaking of a passive faith. If there is the active faith that he calls us to of go and uh, preach, proclaim the kingdom of God, then here is the passive element. To be fit for the kingdom of God or to be found fit. We need a passive faith, not passive meaning I don't do anything, but in your heart you know, and more than you know, you have faith. That Jesus, his death, his resurrection are for you. 
a home base. Something you come home to on breaks from college. Something when you're in that suffering, you can hold on to the cross. This is what empowers your daily struggle against sin, death, the devil, the flesh. When you splash that water on your face in the morning and you remember that you have saving faith by benefit, most likely, of your baptism, you know that you can improve this day. You can say no to the flesh. You can ask and receive forgiveness when you fall because you're saved. And that's what being saved by grace through faith means. You act under the law. And when you fail, you are forgiven in the gospel. Think of Elisha. He literally was plowing. He took 12 oxen. Think of the symbolism, this living symbol of the 12 oxen being pushed by Elisha, one of the greatest prophets. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles in the future, the church is pushed and propelled by this prophet, the word of God. This living picture When he's called, yeah, he says bye to mom and dad, but he sacrifices these oxen. In the same way, us, the 12, reduced to one church, we live our lives as daily sacrifices to God. We give up everything, just as Elisha gave up his day-to-day business of plowing and farming by sacrificing, acting in faith, sacrificing up his oxen, all because a cloak was thrown around his shoulders by the prophet of God. And just, you look up and gaze into eternity and you think about how Jesus had a cloak put around him when he was going to be crucified. And maybe there's a connection there. And Jesus has a cloak put around him in Revelation when he is king of all things. And you, the church, have a cloak put around you when you're presented to the Lord as his bride. It all fits. It all links. I ask you again, how do you respond to these words from Jesus. Luke doesn't give us these people's responses because yours is more important. If Jesus is on his journey from birth to baptism to Jerusalem to death to resurrection, we join him on that journey from our own birth to our baptism, rebirth, to suffering, to death, to resurrection, to eternal life with him, and we will be raised up on the last day, lest I forget to mention. Yet passively, we rejoice in the gift of faith that we have 
that we are saved. Nothing of our own doing, thank God, because we try, sometimes we don't, but either way we fail. But also we actively share the gospel with our loved ones. We share the gospel with the sad person at Jewel in line. We live different from how the world lives because you are holy. You are set apart. And what's the result? What's the result of being on this pilgrimage with Jesus? What's the result of saving faith in Jesus Christ? What's the result of being baptized? What's the result of living not of this world? Well, if what happens to Jesus happens to us, rejection as you walk through the streets of Samaria. But for you, that might be Elk Grove Village, Schaumburg, wherever you visit family. Because just like our master and teacher and brother Jesus, whatever happens to him happens to us. He said as much. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Peace be with you. God love you.